Okay, guys, the, uh, the reading for today is from John 19, uh, 17 to 37. That's uh, John 19, 17 to 37. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there, his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. It's an enjoyable thing to be back, not only at Sydney Uni, but also with the Evangelical Union. I have lots of fun memories hanging out where you guys were sitting attending public meetings and different things, so it's good to be back. Now, um, let's just see. I feel like I'm at the bridge of the USS Enterprise here. There's lots of controls. Let's see what's happening. All right. There we go. All right. We're underway. We Christians have a lot of really weird obsessions. If you're observing Christianity from the outside, you've probably noticed a few things about Christian behaviour. We can be obsessed with a few different things. We can be obsessed with sex. That's one thing we can be obsessed with. We can be obsessed with money. 
we can be obsessed with arguing, especially if Facebook is anything to go by. And in fact, there's a very interesting experiment you can do with Google. You know when you're searching in Google and you type in your question and then Google will offer the, the rest of the sentence before you've typed it in, depending on what other people are searching for? Have you ever done that? I've decided to do this with regard to questions people are asking about Christianity, just to see what that fountain of all knowledge, Google, says about the faith that, that, that I share. Um, so here's the first question I typed in. Why are Christians so mean? <laughs> that was the, the first answer. And so obviously people have experienced Christians perhaps being a little bit judgmental, perhaps telling people what to do with, with, it, with their life. And so this is what Google is telling us about public perceptions about Christianity. Second question. Why does the church oppose abortion? So again, people are observing a bit of a moralistic thing happening in Christianity. Christians oppose what other people do or, or don't do with, with their lives and, and with their, their personal um, issues and, and, and matters. And so that's a, probably unexpected, really, to see people respond in that way. Here's the, the third question. Why doesn't the church allow priests to marry? A particular question, perhaps, reflecting the um, practices of the Catholic Church there. It's a little unexpected. And I, I think this, this last question was the one that kind of blew me away a little bit. Why do Christians fast? Was the question, was the top response from Google. And so people are interested not only in the morality that they observe about Christianity, but they're also interested about the different Christian practices and habits. Another top response Google gives you is when you type in, why does the church, and then another response is, why does the church have seasons? Reflecting the different liturgical seasons of the year, which is, I'm fully surprised people are actually interested in that and are asking that question, but you never know what things people observe and have questions about. But there is one obsession which people seem to have stopped asking about. And uh, in ancient times when Christianity was growing and spreading about the globe, this was an obsession that took a lot of people by surprise and a lot of people had questions about this obsession, but these days this obsession doesn't seem to be quite as contentious. Christians are also obsessed with death. In particular, they're obsessed with the death of their founder, Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment. That's just weird, don't you think? The symbol of the Christian faith is a cross, an instrument of Roman torture and execution. If an ancient uh, Roman was suddenly transported into our modern age and if she saw you wearing a cross casually around your neck, she would probably be horrified. That's a little like attending the first day of lectures in a new course turning to the person next to you and seeing them sitting there with a hangman's noose just casually dangling around their neck. I mean, if you saw that, you'd probably want to find another seat pretty quickly, wouldn't you? Or, or at the very least, you'd ask the question, why, why are you wearing this thing around your neck? It's a very strange thing to be focused on, a very strange thing to be obsessed over. You may have heard of Cicero, the ancient Roman orator. This is what he said about crucifixion. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. 
To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. So you can imagine as the earliest Christians started to worship this crucified man, their friends and families, at the very least, they would have been bewildered. You you worship who? A, A what? Someone strung up on a cross? That's a little strange. They would have been bewildered. We know that some people reacted with derision and ridicule. This is the earliest known depiction of Christ's crucifixion on a cross. It's a piece of ancient graffiti found in Rome on the Palatine Hill. If you can just make it out there, it's a picture of a man with a donkey's head crucified and the inscription says, Alexa Menos worships God. And uh, we assume that's Alexa Menos there on the, uh, the left-hand side of that piece of graffiti. You worship a guy on a cross? That, we're not going to let you get away with that. That's worthy of ridicule, that is. So why did the Christians do it? Why this obsession with Christ's death? This is where I want to spend the rest of my time with you, looking at the account of Jesus' crucifixion in John's Gospel. Because although it reads like a a straightforward account, there are a couple of details included by John which indicate why it is that the early Christians, and indeed Christians today, are focused on this bizarre event, the crucifixion of a man 2,000 years ago. Let me read to you from verse 23 of John chapter 19. If you have your Bibles open, John chapter 19 is, is where we're at. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pick out the main phrases from, from the various, passage, from the various uh, paragraphs in this, in this text and just put them up on the screen so you can listen and just have a look at the, the highlights as I put them up there. But let me read from verse 23 of John 19. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. John is saying that in this detail, we see something echoed from an ancient text written centuries before Jesus' life, something written in the Old Testament. The scripture being spoken about here is Psalm 22, which is a psalm written by King David, an ancient Israelite king. And uh, in this psalm, David is lamenting the fact that he's been chased and hounded by his enemies. Now, King David wasn't only a a good king, he wasn't only a a great warrior, but he was also a bit of a poet. And so he wrote lots of uh, psalms, which is what we find in the Old Testament. And in these psalms, he uses all sorts of metaphors to describe how he's feeling, including this line, which you find in Psalm 22, verse 18. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. He's imagining what his enemies would do if they caught up with him. They'd ridicule him by souveniring his clothes. David wrote many psalms. Another psalm is Psalm 69, 
where he's crying out again under the strain of persecution. In verse 3, he says, I'm worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. And then in verse 20, he says, I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For for comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. It's another imaginative description of how much his enemies hate him. And now skip forward centuries to Jerusalem, AD 33. And we read these incredible words from John's Gospel, from verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So as we read through John's account of the crucifixion, we start to see a number of quite remarkable parallels. King David laments the fact that his enemies are after him and he talks about his clothes being divided up by Lot. We read the crucifixion narrative, what happens to Jesus' clothes. They're divided up by Lot. King David, in an imaginative way, uses the metaphor of callously being given vinegar to drink. Jesus, in his hour of rejection, is given vinegar on a sponge to drink. Why are Christians obsessed with the cross? Well, as Jesus was killed, what we see is that a number of metaphors associated with King David, they're coming to life. So the way in which Jesus is being killed, it's making a statement. It's making a statement that in Jesus, we have a new king. Not only was Jesus physically descended from the family of David, but here at his crucifixion, it's also... I guess a coronation is what you might call it. God here at the cross is giving us someone to lead us. He's giving us someone to follow. You see, it's the details of the crucifixion that give us the significance of this event. And the symbolism doesn't end there. Let's have a look at a few more of the notable details. Because Jesus was a Jew there was concern that his body not be left on the cross after evening had, um, had come about because Jesus was crucified on a, on a Friday during the day. The Sabbath was going to start at sundown on that Friday night and extend over to the Saturday. And so John explains what happens from verse 31. Now, it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. There are a couple of different theories as to how execution by crucifixion worked and it would probably depend on the type of cross that was being used. But the image we have here from John's Gospel, Jesus is strung up on the cross and you could die either by one of two ways. Either you were up there being supported, not only by your hands being bound to the cross or nailed to the cross, but some crosses also had a little seat that the prisoner would sit on. And so if that was the, the type of cross that was being used, the prisoner would die not from blood loss, but the prisoner would die from exposure and from hunger. It would took days sometimes for prisoners to die in this way. But it's interesting that Jesus says, or the, the Bible says that in Jesus' case, 
the Roman soldiers wanted to break the legs of the prisoners who were strung up. So that indicates that perhaps Jesus didn't have a seat on the cross that he was sitting on, but rather as he hanged there, slowly as his body weakened, he would sink down, only to have to lift himself up like a gymnast on the rings, lift himself up to take a breath before he'd go down again. And the idea of breaking the legs is that prisoners would not be able to push themselves up to take that breath anymore, so it would hasten the death process. And because the Sabbath was coming, they wanted these guys to die quickly. And so they broke the legs of the prisoners either side of Jesus. But John says that when they came to Christ, they found he was already dead. But to make sure, verse 34 says that the Romans pierced Christ's side with a spear. Just to make sure he was finished. It's in these first moments after Christ's death that we see two more important parallels with ancient texts written centuries before Jesus, with what we find in the Old Testament. John doesn't want us to miss the importance of these details. Verse 36, he says, These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. What do these next two parallels suggest? Well, they suggest that Jesus not only died as a king, but that he also died as a saviour. That's what they suggest. Here's another weird thing about Christians. When we get together, we sing really weird songs. I remember sitting in church a couple of years ago and in front of me there was a, a woman and her, her partner and they were there as visitors. They are there at church for the first time and so we were singing a hymn as we do in church and the lyrics of the hymn went something like, Glory be to the Lamb! Glory be to the Lamb! And the woman turns to her partner and she asks, Why are we singing to a lamb? Good question. It sounds like that belongs more in a Disney movie, like Dr. Doolittle or something like that, doesn't it? Why are grown people gathering together, educated people, singing to a little baby animal? Here is why we worship a lamb. It's got to do with something, again, we find in the Old Testament. Now, every year, God's Old Testament people, the Israelites, would celebrate the Passover, and during the Passover, each family would sacrifice a lamb. And uh, this was to be repeated every year in remembrance of when God rescued the Israelites out of slavery. The instructions for this sacrificial lamb, for, for organising the lamb and, and making the sacrifice, were very clear. In Exodus uh, chapter 12, regarding the Passover lamb, the instruction is, do not break any of the bones. And so as John, and, and we believe John was there, look, because of the way this gospel is written, we believe he was there, with, a, with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. We believe he was there watching this happen. And so as John saw that Jesus' legs weren't broken, unlike the other two criminals with him, his mind went to Exodus and went to the Passover. And I think John realises that what we have in Christ's death is a new kind of Passover. It's a new act of rescue. It's a, it's a new act of redemption. What are we being rescued from? Well, this is where our, our fourth and final parallel fills in the picture for us. As, G, as John saw the spear enter Jesus' side, his mind went 
to yet another Old Testament text, Zechariah chapter 12, where God says these words, They will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and on that day a fountain will be opened up to Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. This is why we worship a lamb. Because it's the lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. That's why we worship him. You know, we've had a light-hearted look, I guess, at some of the different Christian obsessions, singing weird songs, obsessing over morality and, and things like that. Uh, more seriously, people will say that we Christians are obsessed with guilt. And the way we talk about sin and the way we talk about wrongdoing, I don't blame people from making that conclusion. But let's be clear, the Christian message is not just that people are sinful. The Christian message is that in Jesus we have cleansing from sin. That's the message. You know, the death, this might sound like a strange metaphor, but it kind of gets at what Zechariah is talking about. Um, the death of Jesus is like a great, big, bubbly, effervescent spa bath with jets <laughs> that target the dirt on your body and then blast it off your skin. There is no mark left once you've been in that bath. Now, that might sound a bit strange, but it's what Zechariah is getting at where he's saying that when Jesus died, a fountain was opened up a fountain for cleansing. Uh, we don't really have these in Australia. Recently I went to France and I was cycling through the vineyards. You cycle in France, that's what you do. Um, you're cycling through the vineyards and uh, we were going from town to town to town and in the middle of each town was a, was a public fountain because that's, people didn't have water in their homes and so that's where you did your cleaning. Fountains are for cleansing. And when it comes to sin and wrongdoing, the cross of Christ is something which cleanses us. It leaves no stain unremoved. I think there are lots of ways to misunderstand sin. Uh, Christians and non-Christians can fall into these traps. First of all, people can think they're not sinful at all. I don't need cleansing. Nothing, nothing, wrong, nothing wrong here. I, I, for people who hold that view, I, I'll simply say, you have centuries of literature and history that are against you at that point because some of the brightest minds ever to put pen to paper have realised that there is something wrong. There is something wrong with the world. There is something wrong with humanity. That, that's the first mistake. We can think that we're not sinful at all. Second mistake, we can think that somehow we can counterbalance the bad things we do by doing extra good things, and if we do more good things than bad things, then somewhere we're all right. I think the problem with that is a simple one. We'll never know whether we've done enough. We'll never know whether we've done enough. I think the third problem, and sadly many Christians are still in this position, and this is why people think we're obsessed with guilt, but I think thirdly, Christian and non-Christian, we can convince ourselves that sin is irremovable. That once it's there, it's there for good. But the Bible begs to differ with all these miscomprehensions. We're not called to remove sin ourselves. That's something Jesus does at the cross. And he removes it completely, he removes it forever. He removes it by his death. This is why we're obsessed with this death. Do you see that? It's not because we're obsessed with guilt, but rather we're holding on to that cleansing that the cross can bring. 
So the cross means two things, I think, given what we've looked at with these parallels. It means that Christ is the King and it means that Christ is the Saviour and the reason we can believe these things is because of all the little details surrounding Christ's death. The way Jesus was crucified shows us that this wasn't a random execution. Rather, God's hand was involved. Ancient prophecies are being fulfilled and there's so many of them that this just can't simply be a coincidence. God's hand is involved and is at play in this event. Something big is happening. You might think to yourself, well, maybe it was all set up to give the impression that something big was happening, to give the impression that prophecy was being fulfilled. Maybe the Romans got together and said, let's really irritate those Jews, let's crucify Jesus in such a way that he fulfills the Old Testament. (laughs) It didn't happen like that because Pilate himself in chapter 18 says during Christ's trial, he says, what, am I a Jew? Do I know all the ins and outs of your religion? I don't. You need to work this out for yourselves, he said. He admitted that as a Roman, he had no idea about Jewish religion. He had no idea about the Psalms, about the Old Testament. So these Roman soldiers, it's significant that it was Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus because it shows us that it wasn't a setup. What's happening here is that by God's own action, Jesus is being identified as the new king. He's being identified as the saviour. The only question we have left is this. Did it really happen in this way? Is this the way it really happened? Did it happen in the way John described, with with all the echoes of ancient texts written years before Jesus, did it really happen in such a way to suggest that God's hand is actually involved in what we're seeing here? Well, one piece of evidence you have is the document I've been reading from, the document you have in front of you, John's Gospel. That's one piece of evidence. Now, I know as soon as I point people towards this, there'll be, there'll be objections. You, you can't point to the Bible to prove something about Christianity because it's written by Christian people, it's written by religious people. You can't use the Bible to talk about Christianity because it's biased. Well, guilty as charged. It is biased. In fact, John is quite forthright in saying a couple of different things. He, he says that um, these things are written in chapter 20 that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he has an agenda, but he's quite upfront about it. And being biased is um, not necessarily to say that there's no truth involved in the, in the document at all. Um, whenever we look at historical documents, we need to deal with bias because if they're written by a human, then they're going to come with certain presuppos- presuppositions and, and certain assumptions. I remember when I was a student, I was studying archaeology. That was my major. Because I was a nerd, I audited the history on stream in history. And uh, we were sitting there in a tutorial discussing what makes for good evidence. And there was one student who was a mature age student, you know the type. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this, this student never asked a question. He always made pronouncements. Uh, and his, uh, his comment was, we should pay more attention to archaeological evidence because unlike the written record, it never lies. And as an archaeology student, I thought to myself, you idiot. Artifacts don't lie, but artifacts rely on human interpretations and humans make up all sorts of rubbish. You see, it was interesting, as a history student, he knew there was a problem with the human heart. But whatever a human writes something, they're going to have an agenda, they're going to have a bias, right? And so it's the responsibility of a good historian not to try and find the ultimate 
source which is written in the cold light of logic without any bias whatsoever. Those things don't exist. It's the responsibility of the historian to take bias into account and see through the bias and mine from the document that information which is useful and reliable. And John's Gospel is a document which is actually good value in this sense. There's lots of information which makes it both a religious text and a reliable text as well. Just a couple of moments to explain why John's Gospel, when it talks about the crucifixion in this way, is both religious and reliable. First of all, it was written not long after the events it describes. The latest research, I, I, this, I don't know whether this is in the mainstream media, but certainly in Christian media, this is something which has come up on my newsfeed in the last few days, in fact. The latest research suggests that people are pretty sure that the date of Jesus' execution was April 3, AD 33. We just passed the, the anniversary, actually. Um, the reason Easter shifts around a bit is a, is a product of church history. But um, this is what they, they reckon Jesus died, AD 33. Now, John was written no later than AD 70. How do we know that? Because he makes reference to various architectural things in Jerusalem that were destroyed when the Romans sacked that city in AD 70. John was not an archaeologist. He didn't dig things up. Archaeology is only a very recent um, academic discipline in the last couple of centuries. And so whoever wrote John's Gospel, be it John or, or one of his associates, we're dealing with an eyewitness account here. It's a very early account which means it's a little more accurate than what you might expect of something that was written centuries and centuries later. In fact, you compare this biography, if we can call it that, of Jesus with some of the, the writings of other religious leaders and, and you see it's a very different category altogether. The, the earliest life of Buddha, for instance, 350 years after he lived. Um, the earliest life of, of the prophet Muhammad from, from Islam, written 125 years after, after he was active. And so neither of those dates are within living memory of, of the main character, but with the Gospel of John, we have something written within living memory. So it was written early. That's why it's a reliable document. Second of all, it's transparent. We've seen that already with John being very upfront about his goals. So he gets points for honesty there. But also another interesting aspect of, of this document is that John names a lot of people. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, Nicodemus, the disciples, of course. And the, the significance here is that John is saying to his first readers, you don't believe me? Go and talk to these people. It's kind of like an ancient form of footnoting. Um, these people can verify what I'm saying, basically, is what he's saying. You might think, ah, yeah, but they were all in on it together. They were all Christians, all in on it together. They concocted this whole thing well, if Facebook has taught me anything, it's that the human heart cannot help but correct another person. <laughs> Even Christians, right? Christians don't let other Christians get away with something that's not true. They're there to correct you um, as soon as you post it. Uh, I know, it happens to me a lot. So um, I'm sure it would have been the same dynamic back then. If these gospel writers, and we have three others apart from John, by the way, gathered together in the New Testament, if these gospel writers were fabricating a lie, then they were being very foolish by naming other people in their account. Of course, the alternative explanation as to why these names are there is that John is convinced that he's speaking the truth. So he couldn't possibly think of why anyone would object to him naming them in his account. 
But even aside from religious texts like John, we can go to other sources outside the church that corroborate what John has been telling us. I'll give you just one. There are more than, more than these, but I'll give you just one. There he is, Tacitus, who is an ancient Roman historian. That is, he's an ancient Roman himself, but he also wrote about the history of ancient Rome. And um, he, uh, he has, uh, talk about bias. This guy has heaps of, heaps of bias against all sorts of different people as a historian. Um, he lived in the century after Jesus, and so he observed the growth of the early church. And um, here's what he said, and we assume that he based his research in the imperial Roman records, which we think he had access to. Uh, the context of this quote is that the Emperor Nero is trying to find a scapegoat for a great fire that engulfed the city of Rome. People were starting to blame him, so he needed to pin the, the blame on someone else, and so he decided to pin the blame on the Christians. This is what Nero says. Uh, this is what Tacitus says. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And thus a deadly superstition, checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city, Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. Uh, he's full of bias, this guy. He hates Nero. He hates all the Julio-Claudians, actually, if you've studied any ancient history, particularly Tiberius. He'll take any opportunity he can to, to sully Tiberius' reputation. And he hates Christians as well. He calls them a deadly superstition. But even though he wants to do the Christians no favours, what do we notice? He's still capable of telling the truth, isn't he? His bias doesn't stop him from reporting the Christians' innocence. Biased writing is still capable of truth. We need to remember that when we're reading the Gospels in the New Testament. But we also notice, more to our point, that Jesus was in fact executed. He was executed by the Romans. He was executed in Judea. And uh, in particular, the Roman who gave this order was in fact Pilate, just as the Gospels say. By the way, if you are sceptical about Jesus' very existence, and uh, there are a number of people who are sceptical about Jesus' very existence, then I think documents like what we have here from Tacitus make it very hard to sustain that scepticism. Think what you like about his claims, but if you write off Jesus' very existence, then I think that's to harbour, frankly, a bizarre level of historical ignorance to be frank. Um, even Richard Dawkins, uh, in his chapter, uh, The God Delusion, quotes a, 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 a German academic, I think, who, who is way out on his own in his thinking about history. Then he quotes all this stuff about why Jesus might not exist. And at the very end of the chapter, Dawkins says, ah, yeah, but he probably did. He probably did exist. Did it really happen, though? Did the crucifixion happen in this way? I think so. Jesus did die by crucifixion. I'm confident it happens in the way John describes, and it means that it was no ordinary death. It means that God was behind it. Such are the parallels with Old Testament prophecy. It means that Jesus is a king. And most importantly, it means sin can be taken away. That's what it means. So what do we do? 
Uh, well, I think there are a number of different responses to this. You, you might be sitting here and by the number of green shirts in the room, I, I assume there are many people here who are listening to what I'm saying and they're going, yep, I agree. Well, I'm glad you agree and I hope you've been encouraged by what we've said. Uh, keep thinking about how to talk about this stuff. Train yourself up to give an account for the hope that you have in the Lord Jesus. So that'd be my encouragement to you. Some of you are in no way convinced whatsoever. Thanks for listening. I hope you've learned a little bit about how someone like me sees things because I think the value of coming to something like this if you're not a believer and if you're nowhere near um, coming to belief is that at least when you're talking with Christians and you um, want to argue with them, you know what it is they actually believe before you, before you engage with the conversation. So I'd, I'd encourage you to keep on thinking about it just for the sake of your friendships with Christian people, actually. I'd encourage you to do that. But uh, some of you might want to know more. Uh, if that's you, we do have a few moments for questions, I think. Uh, and, uh, or I, I think Beth will come up and explain what you can do with a card that you would have received. And so you can find out more. I encourage you to do that. Come back next week because I'll be speaking about the other big Easter event, the resurrection, and what history has to say about the resurrection. But uh, at the very least, I hope you can see that the death of Jesus is something you need to make a decision about because it makes big claims about who Jesus is. It makes big claims about the nature of human purpose and of, of humanity in general, actually, and uh, it makes claims about what is historically true. So I encourage you to get, work through it to get some clarity. That's how I want to encourage you to finish. Thanks, Bethany. Hi. Uh, I'm going to invite Marty to come back up. Uh, and I've just received one question. So if you've still got some questions, after I've asked this question, feel free to put up your hand and I'll open the floor to you guys. So the question is, would Jesus' death still be significant if he wasn't God? And how do we know that he actually was? Uh, no, it wouldn't be significant because God needs to do the saving. Uh, according to, I guess, the, the doctrine you find in the Bible, um, particularly my mind goes to Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about how we humans are dead in our transgressions, marred by sin. Uh, that's true for every human. And so in order for humans to find salvation in God's eyes, no single human could come and lift ourselves up out of sin because all humans are in the same boat. Um, sin is so pervasive that each human uh, has um, no chance of finding righteousness in God's eyes on their own, let alone for the rest of humanity. And so God has to come from the outside and do the saving. So this is why it's important that Jesus is both human, fully human, and also fully God, because only God can save. So that's been my answer to the first part of the question. second part of the question was, just remind me again, how do we know? How do we know that he is actually God? Well, I would say take up your Bible, read through the Gospels and just see whether the Gospels present a convincing case. You know, uh, John, who wrote the Gospel, appeals to the different acts that Jesus did, the different signs, he calls them, different miracles, and he says, have a look at those. What, are, what do you think those tell you about this person of Jesus? Uh, the other thing that was interesting to my mind, um, that quote from Zechariah 12, it's God who says, they will look upon me, the one they've pierced. And it is Jesus who is pierced. Uh, and Jesus also claims in John's Gospel that he and the Father are one. If you see him, you see the Father, he says to one of his disciples in John chapter 14. And so Jesus makes the claim that he is God. So I'd suggest you take up one of these documents, 
the Gospels and just see whether there's a, uh, there's a convincing case within those pages. That's what I'd suggest you do to know if it was true.